Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Joining us for the CIO Strategy Snapshot, glad to welcome back Jason Dreho, the Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Jason, great to be back in studio with you here on a Tuesday morning in our studios here in Midtown Manhattan. Plenty to cover, so we'll get right into it, but hope all's well. All's good. Yeah, it's good to be back in the studio. This is the second time. Absolutely. And Jason, I know we spoke probably a week ago at this point, and when we last spoke, investor sentiment, market activity, a bit different relative to what we're seeing today in the futures this morning, bit of a reversal from even 30 minutes ago. So let's, Jason, maybe start with what's happening in markets right now, and the biggest focus of this week, which of course is the Jackson Hole Economic Central Bank Symposium, which will be taking place later in the week. Fed Chair Jerome Powell is scheduled to deliver a speech on Friday morning. Investors do seem to be a bit jittery that he could send a very hawkish message. So, Jason, what is CIO expecting at the upcoming symposium? Well, yeah, that's what you're seeing in the markets over the past week is expectations of what Powell could say. Because over the past week or so, you've seen various Fed officials kind of come out and you know, push back against the market narrative that you know the Fed could hike to 3.5% and be done and then even start cutting, sort of reinforcing the view that they've already laid out. So in terms of what Powell's likely to say, it's probably just a continuation of the message you've heard from other Fed speakers in the past two weeks, a reiteration of what he said at the recent uh, FOMC press conferences, that they're focused on inflation, that they need to bring it down, that's their priority. Uh, they remain committed to doing that, you know, things along those lines. Uh, something that perhaps also saying like it's not going to be easy, that there could be economic pain, i.e., you know, recession is a possibility. Also, the unemployment rate could go up, that it's probably not achievable or it's going to be difficult to achieve without that happening. Although, of course, they're going to try. So sort of reinforcing, you know, what they've, um, you know, what Powell's also, you know, been saying. It's unlikely, though, that they're going to give too much prescriptive detail on what to expect of this September FOMC meeting or kind of beyond. And the simple reason being is that they still have a good amount of data between the Jackson Hole meeting, you know, this Friday and when they meet, I believe it's like September 21st would be the, the FOMC date. So they will get the August inflation data. They will get August jobs report. This could either reinforce the positive trends we saw for July with inflation coming down, the economy holding up, or it could go in a different direction that would suggest, you know what, you know, inflation isn't coming down. The economy is still too hot. We have to keep going more. I think right now the market's almost 50-50 for September. The Fed's probably not going to say enough to say one way or the other because they don't know themselves. We need to see the data. And if we don't know for September, that means I think the rest of their path is is still uncertain. And given they have a chance in September to update their economic projections, I think they'll wait for that. So reiterating the key message, I think it will be Powell's point, you know, sounding tough, but not necessarily providing a lot of details. Uh, It's interesting if you look at the market pricing over the past two weeks, it's sort of reconverged to what the Fed is saying. So, for example, uh, the Fed funds rate is you know, gets to three point six percent based on market implied pricing. The Fed is around like you know three point four, three and a half percent. So it's a little bit you know this was up from about three and a quarter just a few weeks ago. The bigger difference is next year, where the market had been pricing cuts as soon as March and up to about seventy five basis points of rate cuts next year. Now the Fed actually goes to about three point eight percent according to the futures market, and then later in the year by the third or fourth quarter cuts a cumulative amount of about thirty five basis points. So now the market is sort of in line with the dot plot. So if the dot, does, dot plot doesn't change or there's indications that it wouldn't change. I think the market's kind of already there. So for the activity we're seeing in other risk assets this week and last week, it could be a little bit of, you know, sell the rumor, buy the news. 
So you're worried about what's going to mm-hmm. happen. You kind of like, okay, it's not worse than we feared. And you kind of breathe a sigh right. of relief by Friday afternoon. So I think that's sort of the, the feels like we're moving towards that direction, you know, but we'll see how it plays out. Let's run with recent market activity a bit further. And to your point, there has been a bit of a pullback in markets this following what was a very strong rally during the month of July into even mid-August. And again, we spoke about this last week, though. Even yesterday, you did see markets close Monday's session. The S&P 500 closed off by 2.1%. So there does seem to have been a bit of a shift that has occurred. What do you attribute this price action to, Jason? And where do we go from here? Well, let's just start with the rate story and how the markets have kind of repriced in hikes. So, you know, the tenure right now is at 3.06%, uh, and it's up, you know, almost uh, in five basis points today. Uh, it was around 2.7% again just a few weeks ago. So, again, we've seen a sizable move in rates going higher. All of equal higher rates means lower asset prices across the board. So there's a little bit of a mechanical aspect to it from there. Uh, and this is the market reflecting, okay, maybe the Fed has to go more aggressively. If they go also more aggressively, you know, the you know the shift that the market had towards, well, soft landing looks increasingly likely. Now you realize, okay, it's still very much kind of uncertain the path will, will take. So I think there's a little bit of that. You have to put this in context of also, you know, how much the markets were up. Uh, from the June low, I think it was uh, June 14th, the S&P rose 17%, even more for the NASDAQ. And it, was, it wasn't it was certainly a straight line, but really from around the second week of July, it was pretty mm-hmm. kind of consistent move higher. So there was definitely, you know, scope for some pullback. And, you know, we barely pulled back. Right? Too far, too fast, maybe. Yeah, that's a, that's a movie title there, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think there's a little bit of that going on. Uh, there's also, if we go back to June, you know, sentiment and positioning were really kind of pessimistic. So just kind of, kind of coming off from that extreme suggested you get a bit of technical tailwind. Uh, we saw a lot of short covering. There's definitely been some buying by systematic strategies like CTAs, momentum funds, risk parity strategies. But a lot of that may be at least kind of past the midpoint of what they would actually do. So some of that tailwind is likely abating. Uh, and so I think you kind of put that in context. You know, a big move, now some consolidation, assess where we go from here, waiting for the Fed, right? And, and it's also, you know, a lot of people are on vacation. Took the last little sure. hurrah before you kind of everyone sort of returns after Labor Day. Um, so I think you kind of have to take them, you know, some of the price action with a grain of salt because liquidity is quite poor across uh, various markets. Speaking of titles, I do want to point out a recent blog you authored. A title is Glasses of Rosé, which caught my eye, does tie into CIO's longer-term outlook. But within the blog, it does propose a bulk case for the secular investment horizon. So, Jason, what exactly do you mean by this? So this was a, a follow-up blog to one I, I wrote and we published last October titled uh, rose-colored glasses. Right, right. So, you know, back in October, if you recall, people were starting to become pessimistic on inflation, you know, not being transitory. The supply chain issues were, were definitely becoming more prominent. And there was a view at the time that, well, now we're going to head towards maybe a stagflationary outcome. Uh, and so the the blog at the time was to sort of lay out, well, there's actually things going on in the economy that would sort of make the case for a secular, you know, uh, you know kind of bull case, like things could actually turn out quite mm-hmm. well. If you step back even further to kind of the spring of uh, of 2021, there was a lot of talk about a paradigm shift or regime change. You know, we even use the term like a roaring 20s scenario mm-hmm. uh, where because you had, at the time, inflation wasn't an issue. You had a lot of fiscal stimulus. The economy was coming back as the vaccines were being rolled out. You know, a decent amount of optimism. And by the by the fall, that faded. The fall blog and sort of, you know, the one just published yesterday was trying to kind of examine what is sort of the, the secular bull case. So looking beyond the next 6, 12 months as we debate, you know, how soon inflation will fall, could there be a recession or not? But think about like from 2024 and beyond, like what does the rest of the decade kind of look like? Mm-hmm. And the bull case, 
you know, last October, and I think it still applies now, is sort of a scenario where you get sustained GDP growth of, you know, at least, say, 2% or higher. So kind of higher than it was pre-pandemic. You know, not a huge amount, but modestly so. Uh, you also have a situation where inflation falls, you know, for the kind of, you know, due to in the course of the decade, and you can get sustained job growth. We also get sort of rapid productivity improvement as new technology to deployed, uh, and sort of these revolutionary technologies that could sort of change the world, a little bit like what we had in the late 1990s. So the the October blot kind of, you know, you know, paralleled to like Netflix was rebooting the 70s show to the 90s mm-hmm. show. People were fearing the 1970s stagflation. Maybe we get a, like a 1990s kind of scenario. Right. So that was the the context. Now, one of the issues at the time was that, you know, time is sort of against this scenario playing out because a lot of these things are more secular in nature. It takes time for them to materialize. Right now, inflation is high. If inflation doesn't come down, the Fed might have to get more aggressive. That could ultimately kind of risk a recession. Fast forward nine months, and that's kind of what's playing out. So I think that, the, you know, the scenario looked a little less likely. What triggered sort of a review of the factors is simply I had a, we had a client um, who had reread the blog earlier in the summer and said, well, how much of this is applicable? Uh, and so when we reread it, I was kind of surprised and looked into it. Like a lot of this actually still applies. And so I thought it was worth kind of refreshing the blog. By the way, that blog is available up on UBS.com forward slash CIO. For clients of UBS, simply reach out to your financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy. But uh, digging into this a bit deeper, Jason, the factors described within the blog, can you expand on those a bit further and why they're supportive of this secular bull case? So there are 10 factors that I laid out in October and sort of each one I kind of, you know, review this time. And I think the overarching theme, if you look at it, is, is one of kind of investments, you know, both from kind of the public sector, but also in the private sector, you know, kind of ramping up. Uh, there's still a lot of kind of growth capital available. So even though the Fed is raising rates, the amount of money that's available certainly to, to growth opportunities in the private markets is still, you know, fairly abundant. Uh, what we're seeing is, again, despite sort of the concerns about recession and high inflation, a decent amount of kind of risk-taking sort of more business dynamism than we've seen in a number of years, and that, that it, by it, the data suggests that's continuing, you know, even this year. Uh, and business is still embracing sort of new technologies, you know, kind of like this digital transformation is still very much at work, which, again, will have benefits over time that are not necessarily immediately clear. So that's kind of the overarching theme. If we just kind of go into some of those factors, you know, think about on the investment side, the, you know, the public, you know, sort of investment uh, at the time, the blog was expected that we get an infrastructure package passed, and it did last November. It entailed, you know, something like $550 billion of new spending on, on infrastructure, which is now being – early stages of being deployed. Uh, at the time, there was also the prospects of the Build Back Better plan, which, of course, evolved into now the Inflation Reduction Act, mm-hmm. which has over $350 billion in, you know, basically tax incentives to invest in kind of, you know, new technologies, energy-related technologies. Uh, and that's now actually passed. Uh, we also recently had the Chips and Science Act passed, which is two hundred and fifty right. billion to go towards you know building semiconductor capabilities in the U.S., basic research and development, uh, you know things of that sort. So you add that all up, that's around one point two trillion of spending uh, over the rest of this decade. You know, really start to flow starting in twenty twenty three, twenty twenty four. Uh, and really in the next five years after that. So you've had that sort of public sector really you know, the writing big checks. So these are sizable amounts of money. They're also likely to crowd in more private investment as opposed to crowding it out. And if we look at you know, the, uh, you know, the data from the second quarter, just earnings, you're still seeing companies spend a lot on CapEx. Uh, it was up 17% year over year. If you look at S&P 500 companies, it was up 20% uh, year over year in the Q1. You take on a national basis, real kind of private uh, you know, domestic investment uh, has ramped up. It's far higher than it was. Well, you know, it's definitely higher than it was pre-pandemic. Sure. And it's recovered faster than 
when we see other recessions where typically you get a recession, uh, investment pulls back, and it takes a few years before it to ramp up. It took a few quarters in this case. And we're seeing no real signs of companies kind of pulling back. All the indications that we can see are that companies continue to believe investment is a critical function, uh, something they have to do, and they have the cash. I mean, they're spending S&P 500 companies, that is, close to a trillion dollars on buybacks. So mm-hmm. they definitely have the capital collectively to kind of make some of these investments. Then you'd look, turn to, you know, sort of the growth capital argument. Uh, you know, what we've seen over the past year in particular is that a lot of these speculative parts of the market have, have unwound, like, you know, the, you know, the non-profitable tech, IPO, SPACs, those have right. definitely come back to earth. We've seen this filter into the private markets, like conventional capital financing, uh, where there's been a pull, you know, kind of re-rating devaluation to some extent, also fewer deals. But in the second quarter, the total amount of deals globally was something like 7,000 with about $110 billion. This is higher than it was in 2018, 2019, any of those quarters, even the first half of 2020. So it pulled back from a very elevated level, but there's still a lot of essentially dry powder and there's still a lot of money flowing to, especially seeds and startup stages, uh, as opposed to late stage. Like you're not getting the $2 billion check to the Ubers about to go mm-hmm. public. So there's definitely a lot of capital there. Then we think about sort of kind of risk taking that's going on. New business formation on a monthly basis in the U.S. is around 425,000. It's been holding steady at that level really for the past year. You know, it surged a little bit more in 2020. But pre-pandemic, the average is around 300,000. So we're seeing 40% more monthly on a monthly basis new jobs or new business being created versus the pre-pandemic level. That's a big delta. Other indicators you're seeing, you know, the great resignation is still in place. Mm-hmm. Even as people weren't concerned about a slowing economy, there has been no sort of moderation in people's willingness to kind of quit their jobs, look for better opportunities. We see sentiment surveys consistently, whether it's for households, for small businesses, for CEOs, saying, you know, very pessimistic about the economy overall. But you ask them about their personal situation, they'll say, oh, it's actually pretty good. You know, I have good job opportunities. We can't meet demand. We just can't hire enough workers. Right. So you're seeing, again, sort of, if you look at what people are doing, it's actually consistent with willing to take risks as opposed to, you know, you know kind of battening down the hatches. So again, not something you'd think in an environment where we're so concerned about inflation and recession risk. Digital transformation is still very much in play. In the second quarter GDP number, you know, uh, investment like in structures and residential, you know, physical buildings, things like that, that was down 10, 12% year over year on an annualized basis. Uh, but IT investing was up 10%. So clearly they're still seeing investment in you know, digital technologies because companies believe this is sort of mission critical. 10 years ago, they might have paused, but now they realize this is just a core part of the thing we have to do. So again, investing for that business transformation. So all these things, you know, are kind of, to me, are, are, are positive developments. Um, they should, over time, help productivity, uh, mm-hmm. which definitely has been sort of weaker the first half of this year. But over time, there is a pretty good correlation between the more you sort of invest in capital, deepen capital, invest in technology, ultimately this leads to some sort of productivity pickup. So those are the factors and the cases for why I think there's, there is kind of a, a secular bear case, scenario, a bull case scenario out there. Well, it's very helpful clarity, Jason, as to where we may be going when you really dig into the data as well as the sentiment. All of those considerations in mind, how likely do you see this scenario playing out, this secular bull case, and what are some of the implications associated with it? Well, this is the bull case, right? So this is not sort of the base case. I think a lot of things have to go right. So, you know, with any kind of bull case, you probably never have more than about a 20% chance of this happening. Uh, another thing that I didn't mention, but one of the factors, the first factor in the initial blog last fall, and I retouch it, is the idea of a positive aggregate demand shock. So in the pre-pandemic period, there was kind of this idea that the economy was in suffering from secular stagnation, which just, just, you know, the economy just didn't have enough demand. As a result, there wasn't sort of an investment in new supply, and you just had an environment of lower growth, low inflation, low rates persistently. 
So to kind of break the economy out of that, you could have a positive demand shock that just kind of shocks it. Well, we got that with the COVID policy response. The problem is it also led to inflation. Uh, and now what the Fed is actively doing is trying to cool aggregate demand, brain it down to intentionally slow the economy to cool inflation. So that factor that went sort of from a kind of a positive is now actually working against us. So I think, you know, think about that scenario. You have to kind of fight that pretty sizable headwind. Then if you want to really kind of break it down between sort of the, the, the likelihood of getting the bull case versus, a, you know, the base case, it's really a supply side story. Because everything I kind of outlined is really improving the supply side, the productive capacity of the economy. Now, for all those good things I laid out, there's also arguments that people make that are very valid to say, well, it's true, but what we, you know, companies are doing is that they're investing to, to reshore, to bring production back in the U.S., which is less efficient than, you know, 30 years of globalization and going into China. And so this investment is about building, uh, you know, domestic supply chains or reinforcing supply chains, creating resiliency as opposed to economic efficiency or productivity. The same thing, the energy transition, you know, it requires, you know, you know, resources, people that they're in short supply. This could bid up commodity prices. It could actually be inflationary. You know, we're in a world of sort of shortage of people, uh, of commodities, things of that sort. So, you know, inflation is likely to be certainly higher than it was the pre-pandemic decade. The question is, is how high? Um, there are all sorts of political and geopolitical issues, you know, that, that kind of, you know, constantly pose risks, right? I mean, we still have a war in Ukraine. Taiwan is you know, a threat that's not going to mm-hmm. – an issue that's not going to go away. So you add this all up, there's definitely some improvements on the supply side, mm-hmm. but there's also challenges where like the supply side may be evolving, but in a way that not necessarily productivity enhancing. And then we know there's this you – know, at least in the near term, this drag on, on aggregate demand. So you add it all up. Again, it's sort of the, the upside bull case scenario that, this, that I laid out earlier. But it's something I think it's important to kind of remind ourselves every now and then that these things are going on because we get so focused on – Jackson Hole, right? You know the recession risk. You know, how soon can inflation come down? Because these are secular developments that take many years to play out. Balancing the near and long term. Near and long term. So then you think about you know the investment locations. Well, we know the the economic paradigm that's going to exist for the rest of this decade is going to be different than it was the pre-pandemic. Um, inflation at a minimum is probably going to be higher than it was the last decade. Interest rates might be a little bit higher. We also might have more economic volatility than we did during you know, the prior decade. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, though. Uh, you know, you, there could be investment winner, like the winners from in, from this investment cycle. You know, things like value stocks that benefit from higher nominal GDP growth, energy, materials, industrials, those skew more towards value stocks than growth stocks. Um, so that again could be beneficial to those small cap stocks, mid caps. They tend to benefit from a strong capex cycle, so those could help as well. So there's just certain kind of areas. It's also what I've described as much more like a U.S. story, mm-hmm. which couldn't doesn't mean it can't apply elsewhere. But obviously, there's different challenges if you look at Europe and, and other countries. So I'm thinking this is more of a U.S. story, which isn't a reason to invest in totally in the U.S., but just kind of thinking about from a regional kind of differentiation, this may be more relevant and maybe a dynamic that's more applicable in the U.S. than it is elsewhere. Well, a lot has to play out in the months ahead, but some very compelling points you brought up, Jason, a lot here to consider and a lot we can revisit. Looking forward to seeing how Jackson Hole near term plays out later on this week, Thursday, Friday into the weekend and something we can talk about during the snapshot next Monday. No, sounds good. Well, great to be back in the studio with you, Jason. Thank you again for spending some time with our listeners, our clients, and looking forward to picking back up with our conversation again soon. All right. Have a great rest of the week. You too, Jason. Thank you. Again, we've been joined by Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Again, I do want to point out Jason's blog, which we have been making reference to during our conversation today. Uh, that title, again, is Glasses of Rosé, available for you now up on UBS.com forward slash CIO. 
For clients of UBS, please be sure to reach out to your financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy of the blog directly. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.